like we can we can solve this. This is unmitigated climate change, you know, all of the horrors in the future. Those are completely optional. We don't need to have that future. We can choose the kind of planet that our kids and our grandkids are going to live on. Welcome back to What Comes After, What Comes Next with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. My guest this week is the world-renowned climate scientist and science writer, Dr. Kate Marvel. Kate is the first climate scientist that we've had on the podcast and we couldn't have gotten anyone better. Having started her career as a cosmologist, Kate turned to climate scientist after realising that Earth was, in fact, her favourite planet and that over the last couple of hundred years, we've been ruining it. Part of the reason for inviting Kate on the show was to coincide with the work the Climate Change Commission is doing preparing its final advice to our government on what we need to do to meet our climate targets. Now, I suspect there will be a lot of people out there who read through the Commission's draft advice and accept that the climate change is bad, but struggle to get their heads around just how bad it is. Politicians, like me, can find ourselves talking about the science in a fairly rudimentary way. Parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, the importance of limiting temperature increases to 1.5 degrees, or the tipping points that we face if we cross certain planetary thresholds. But how exactly does a climate model work? How can we know with any certainty what we're doing to the planet? And why are there still some things that we do not know for sure? What role do the oceans play? Why a hotter planet is more conducive to natural disasters? What are the differences between a world that experiences a 2 degree temperature increase as opposed to a 5 degree temperature increase? Kate is one of the best placed scientists in the world to help answer some of those crucial questions. She's a research scientist at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies and a professor at Columbia University's Department of Applied Physics and Mathematics. But she isn't just a leading climate scientist. She also has a unique understanding of how the stories that we tell each other and ourselves about climate change end up structuring our decisions. I caught up with Kate from her home in Brooklyn, New York, which will explain some of the traffic and street noise that you might pick up in the background. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Kate Marvel. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on What Comes After, What Comes Next. Now, you're a climate scientist uh, of some world renown, um, and you, you're, you know, you've been doing a lot of work uh, on the modelling uh, of the various scenarios about where things might be in, ending up uh, in, in the near to medium term future. But you also talk a lot about how we communicate the science. And so I actually just wanted to, before we get into any of the numbers, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you think the current state of play is in between the domain of science, the domain of politics and the general public. 
I think that's a great question. Um, and it's something that I think about all the time, um, because at least here in the States, we we're seeing more and more headlines that say scientists are concerned or scientists are worried. And I always think, like, what are the rest of you doing? Like, why aren't you worried? Um, and I think, you know, there really is this increasing popular realization that climate change is not a scientific problem. Um, obviously, the science underpins it, but it's going to touch, and it already is touching, so many different aspects of society. So we can't, I think, rely on the scientists to communicate our way out of this. Um, and as a scientist, I find that kind of reassuring in a way, because it means that the onus of being a good communicator, or the onus of changing people's minds, it no longer falls on us. Um, so I, I think we're, at least here in the States, we're living through a really, really seismic shift in how we think about and communicate climate change and climate science. And who's doing the communicating here? Because, you know, I mean, I, I, we, we have here in New Zealand, there is a science media uh, team uh, who are working on how to translate some of the stuff. But it is very difficult in my experience to be able to connect the difference between a one and a half degree world and a two degree world with somebody's personal experience uh, and, and, and a sense of empowerment and agency and, and how can I and how can my household do anything about this? Yeah, I agree. I think here the landscape is very fragmented, and that's both a bad thing and a good thing, in a sense, um, because there is no single, um, you know, science czar who can speak on, on behalf of all science. You know, obviously, we have reports. We have the IPCC report. Um, here we have the National Climate Assessment. Um, so there's really no shortage of official reports produced by a bunch of different climate scientists and climate communicators. Um, but there are also writers, there are artists, um, there are politicians, there are social movements. Um, and I think all of those different groups and all of those different communicators are engaging with the science in different ways. And, you know, that is in some sense, a source of concern, because it means it's really, really hard to sort of say, it's, it's hard to evaluate the science that's being used in all of those messages. But on the other hand, I think it's a real positive thing, because it means that people are talking about climate change in a way that resonates with them. So I don't think that there is one story that we can tell about climate change that's going to change everybody's mind and going to convince everybody that this is important and will affect them. I think we all respond to different stories and we all respond to different storytellers, different messengers. Um, so I am really happy that more and more people from more and more walks of life are, are starting to talk about this stuff. Can you tell me a bit about the work that you do, um, particularly around the, the modeling work uh, that that you're quite famous for? So um, I am um, a physicist by training. Um, I started my career studying astrophysics and I got my PhD in cosmology, which is the study of the entire universe. Um, and in the course of doing my PhD, I realized that really only this part of the universe is any good. Um, most of it's kind of empty and boring. Um, and so I, I wanted to apply my physics training to studying 
basically the only good planet. Um, so I, I work with a lot of physical models. I write down equations that describe what we know about the physical world. Um, I also do what I guess could be called big data analysis, um, working with the output of multiple climate models um, and comparing that output to observations, whether those are ground-based observations, satellites, um, or paleoclimate proxies. So ways that we have reconstructing the climate on the earth a thousand or a million or several million years ago. Um, so I, I think my job is really a dream job. It's really varied. Um, it's really interesting. I feel like I learn something new every day. And I feel like the best part is I get to interact with a whole bunch of people who know things that I don't. Um, and I think that's incredible. Um, I'm really interested in what climate change means right now, um, how we are seeing it happening, um, not just rising temperatures, but shifts in rainfall patterns, changes in cloud cover, increases or decreases in drought risk, um, and also what it's going to mean in the future. So what those feedback processes are going to look like on a rapidly warming planet into the future. That's an enormous field. I mean, e even just doing like, like the first part of that job, you know, the big data analysis, looking at the climate modeling, let alone some of those what ultimately end up to be highly localized effects and that kind of attribution challenge. H how do you eat that elephant, as they say? Um, well, I'm a vegetarian. I do not eat elephants. Um, but I think, um, I think it's really important to communicate that nobody does this alone. Um, nobody understands every aspect of the Earth system um, because it is a vast and beautiful and complex and interconnected planet. Um, so, and this is actually where I think working to hone the communication skills, learning how to think about the questions you're asking and phrase them in a way that anybody can understand, that's, that's where it comes in handy as a scientist. Because in the course of my work, I talk to people who specialize in understanding the land surface. I talk to people who understand irrigation. I also talk to people who are oceanographers. I talk to statisticians. Um, and I talk to social scientists who are studying how we got to this place and maybe how we get out of it. Um, so I think it's really, really important that, you know, there is no lone genius of climate science who figures out all this stuff. It's a really collaborative field and we're all dependent on the insights of multiple disciplines. In the past, some of the uncertainties in the modeling have been used as uh a reason for not taking action, you know, like, oh, well, they're, they're just models, they're not statements of reality, you know, there's gaps in the data, there's gaps in the modeling, um, it's probably wrong, we should just keep doing what we do, you know, that that's kind of, you know, something I've heard a bit over the last 30 years or so. Uh, why are there uncertainties in the, in the modeling, and, and why aren't they more precise, and what's changed? Yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a great question, and it's something that I've kind of realized as a scientist. I'm maybe not the best communicator of this stuff, because scientists love to work with uncertainties. We don't want to talk about stuff we've known for 100 years. You know, the greenhouse effect. 
We've known about this for a really, really, really long time. It's boring. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about the stuff we don't know. Um, and I'm really fortunate that there is a bunch of stuff we don't know because it means I can keep going to work every day and figuring it out. Um, so the reason there are uncertainties, there, there, there are many different reasons. First, um, we've never done an experiment like this before. To the best of our knowledge, there's never been a species living on the planet that has deliberately liberated so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and change the chemistry of the atmosphere. So we've got some rough analogs in the past, but there's, there's no exact experiment like this that's ever been done before. We are all living through an uncontrolled experiment right now. Um, I think another reason is the Earth is an incredibly complex system. You know, the sea surface temperatures affect climate all over the planet. Um, a little, you know, warmer or cooler temperature in the equatorial Pacific can lead to an El Nino or La Nina event that has the potential to cause drought in California um, or fires in Indonesia. So all of these things are so interconnected. Um, and when we talk about climate models, we're talking about research tools that incorporate all of our understandings about this unbelievably complex and interconnected planet. Um, there's no way you can do that perfectly. There's no way that you can reproduce the entire planet on a computer because that's literally the matrix, right? Like that's incredibly creepy. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want a tool that's just good enough. Um, but I think, I think you're right. And to your point, when we talk about uncertainty, I feel like people can think, well, climate change could be really bad or it could be really good. And probably it's somewhere in the middle. It'll, it'll probably be fine. Um, and I think we need to be really clear that we've ruled out fine. Um, it could be very, very bad at a particular time for some people and even worse at a particular other time for some other people. Um, and when we get down to that level of specificity, like what is going to happen to New Zealand in the next three decades, there are uncertainties there. Um, and some of them we will narrow as we learn more about the planet and some of them are always going to be there. But I think it's really important to say we've rolled out fine. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that I say is that by the time you have actual data, it's way too late. Because <laughs> <laughs> the whole point is to avoid actual data, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you don't want to actually find out what a four degree world feels like. Uh, you you want to model what it might feel like and then make sure that we never get there. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, so in, in all of this, what are the variables that are most determinative like what are what are the things that you say you know when you're looking at at these models and saying what are the things we really need to pay attention to um in terms of how the climate's going to change how hot it's going to get yeah yeah because uh, i mean a lot of people you know i'm a i'm a lay person right like mm -hmm. the vast majority of people um and i know as some people would say enough to be dangerous uh, about this but i'm not a scientist uh, and so there's this sea uh, of numbers and models uh, that come across my desk that have to somehow inform lawmaking um, and the translation from science to law is, you know, complex. Um, so, you know, it would help if I and others had some sense of, you know, what, what, are the, what are the things we really need to hone in on here? 
I mean, I think to some extent um, from my, so you, I would say you're not a lay person, you're an expert in something else. And that something else is something that I am a complete naive, total lay person in, which is policy, which is politics. Um, and so I think um, if you put your physicist hat on um, and you say, what, why are these things happening? Why is climate change happening? That is an incredibly easy question to answer. Things are happening, the climate is changing because human beings are changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. How are human beings doing that? We are putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, primarily carbon dioxide. How is it getting there? Well, that is a natural byproduct of the combustion process. When you burn a fossil fuel in order to produce energy, it makes CO2. That's what a hydrocarbon does. Um, so we know exactly why the temperature has risen by about one degree since the pre-industrial. Um, it's because carbon dioxide has increased by more than 45% since the pre-industrial. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm being a physicist, I say, well, it's, it's obvious. Um, so why aren't we changing that? Um, and a policymaker would say, hey, not so fast. Um, a historian would say, hey, not so fast, because the trajectory that the world has taken so that we are dependent on carbon dioxide, that is a really, really complicated question that isn't a physics question. It's an economics question. It's an economics question. It's a history question. Mm. It's a identity question. It's a how people see themselves. It's a storytelling question. Um, so I think that's a really long-winded way that I just spent telling you I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it sounds like you have a strong appreciation for those other domains though. So how, how much of your work strays beyond the physics into uh, those other domains that you were just talking about? In my professional work, not much, I have to say. Um, a lot of, I'm, I'm very interested in the earth as a system. Um, even if climate change weren't happening, I would still be an earth scientist because I think this planet is unbelievably amazing. Um, but, you know, I think it is very important for us to clearly communicate our findings. Um, and I also think it's important for scientists to recognize that we are human beings and we are allowed to have feelings about a research subject, which in this case is the planet that we live on. Um, and so I try to be as open as possible about that um, because I think that you can you can think about science and you can try to figure out what's happening and what the world and the data is telling you, but it's also okay to respond to that as a human being. I don't think it makes you a worse scientist. So one of the things that I am constantly thinking about is how do we, how do we get people to relate to this in terms that they can understand? Uh, because in the domain of science and in the domain of policymaking, you know, you're dealing with things that are very abstract to the vast majority of humans. And yet, uh, you know, California with its wildfires, Australia with their wildfires, um, our own kind of issues with uh, constant and increasing drought situations. You mentioned changes in rainfall patterns, which is leading to erosion and, you know, flooding events. You know, these things are sort of starting to stack up. But again, I don't think people are connecting 
necessarily uh, you know a one and a half or a two degree scenario that they might skip over in a newspaper with this thing that's just ha- happened to my house. So how do, how do you make that connection? What's how does you know a four hundred and twenty parts per million CO two in the atmosphere lead to uh, the fact that my farm has had four droughts in the last ten years that are equivalent of four droughts of the previous hundred years? I mean, so this is going to be another long-winded way of saying I don't know. Um, But I do know what doesn't work. Um, I think for a really long time, um, climate change has been associated with pictures of polar bears. Um, And also kind of a a shaming. Um, You know, see this polar bear, this polar bear is going to die, and it's your fault because you're a bad person. Um, And nobody responds to that, you know. People are like, well, polar bears are nice, but I don't know any personally. Um, and you know, people don't like being shamed. Um, and I think people in general don't respond to to shaming and to guilt. And people, some people respond to fear. Um, some people, but some people feel very overwhelmed by it. So I think there's, in terms of what works, there's no one size fits all. Um, and that's why I do think having a diversity of stories and storytellers is so important um, because some people's minds are changed because they see themselves as free market conservatives and they look at the insurance industry and they say, hey, the insurance industry is taking this really seriously. All reinsurance companies have climate scientists on staff. Um, you know, some people, like you said, the example with the farm, you know, some people say things are changing and they're not what they used to be right now. Um, some people respond to stories, you know, like the hero's journey, like we can, we can solve this. This is unmitigated climate change, you know, all of the horrors in the future. Those are completely optional. We don't need to have that future. We can choose the kind of planet that our kids and our grandkids are going to live on. Um, So some people respond to that. Um, And I think there's a real danger in collapsing this this beautiful, wild, you know, comprehensible and incomprehensible planet into a single story. Um, How could it? Um, And so I think that's why it's really, really important to use the tools that we have. We have the arts, we have writers, we have filmmakers. Um, we have people who are professional storytellers. Like, let's let's listen to them and let's lean on them. Having said that, <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference between a 3.2 degree world and a 1.5 degree world? Like, what, is, what does that look like for most people? Um, I mean, I think it depends on where you are and what you care about. I think you will feel a 1.5 world and you will feel a 3.2 world. Um, but the degree to which you will feel those, completely different and not comprehensible. So, for example, coral reefs. Um, we are projected in a 1.5 world to lose 70 to 90 percent of coral reefs that's i so that's something that i don't want to gloss over a 1.5 world does not mean safety it does not mean everything is perfect it doesn't mean there's no climate change but in a three degree world we are seeing heat waves we are seeing sea level rise 
the New York City subway where I live, that could flood like Hurricane Sandy. That could happen every five years by the middle of the century. Um, so there are things that affect our everyday lives that we are going to feel and we are going to feel disastrously in a world that is warmed by three degrees. So one of the things that I, I think often gets lost in the discourse is about, um, you know, like you said, as a physicist, it's actually kind of straightforward. There's, you know, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And someone once said to me, you know, the last time there was this much CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, the sea levels were 20 metres higher and there were palm trees growing in Antarctica, um, which is quite an image. Um, so it, if it... and and if it's that straightforward, obviously you need n not just to stop putting more CO2 into the atmosphere as fast as possible, you also need to take a great deal out uh, as well. And at the moment, the best technology that we have for that is to plant trees, um, but that you know, ha is also has its own uncertainties and variabilities and, and so on. Uh, and there are experiments with direct air carbon capture, so essentially some kind of engineering solution that uh, just pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere and then magically does something with it uh, to have it go away somewhere else, um, like in, back into the ground or something. What's, what's your view on those kinds of technologies? I am not qualified to assess the feasibility or the economic feasibility of any particular technology other than trees. I think trees are great value for money. Let's get more trees. Um, I do know that we cannot plant our way out of the climate. We, we can't plan our way out of climate change. Um, trees are great, um, but trees will not be able to mitigate um, unchecked emissions. Um, so, you know, and again, you mentioned there are so many uncertainties there. Um, as far as direct air capture goes, carbon removal, um, from a physics perspective, the atmosphere cares about carbon dioxide. And if you put stuff in there, the planet will get hotter. And if you take it out, it'll stop getting hotter and it'll cool back down again. So there are some complexities, but sort of broad brushstrokes if you get the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, if you restore it to pre-industrial levels, more or less climate change stops. You go back to normal, it's not a crisis anymore. Now there are effects on top of that. Maybe it's not gonna go back exactly the way it was. Maybe things are broken, that will be broken forever. But more or less, you take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and things get better, it stops warming. What, I mean, we often talk about pre-industrial levels. What was the parts per million uh, we before used two, the Industrial Revolution? We used 280 parts per million in our calculations. And so, and, <laughs> and, and there's the scientist. Uh, we used 280 in our calculations. Why? Um, because that's what we know was the pre-industrial um, carbon dioxide concentration, more or less. And is that pulled from things like ice core samples from Antarctica? And Exactly. We have wonderful records of carbon dioxide going back um, tens of thousands of years from, from ice cores. Uh, so we were a couple of hundred years ago at 280, 
um, people worked out how to replace horses with a horsepower equivalents uh, in the form of coal and uh, away we're now at 420 parts per million uh, we think so that's almost a doubling uh, in 200 years that seems a lot to then get back down to like I think at, at one level it's you know people kind of getting their heads around the idea that we can stop putting it into the atmosphere you know we can switch to electric cars and we can change out our kind of heavy industry with new technologies and um, you know we can farm in different ways uh, that produce lower amounts of methane and nitrous oxide and so on um, but this the, the sort of colossal uh, scale of, of actually trying to reduce back down to 280 parts per million seems pretty Herculean. It seems Herculean, but I think it's important to note that good enough is not impossible. Um, we can have a more or less stable climate, and climate change can be a, a worry. It can be something that our children and grandchildren are concerned about, but it doesn't have to be a catastrophe, and it doesn't have to be a disaster from a physics perspective. And, uh, well, I mean, there's, oh, I've got plenty of people lining up to tell me the industrial story there. Um, what, what what role do the oceans have in this? Because I think that's sort of starting to seep in around people's consciousnesses, actually, that, that the oceans have an enormous role to play. And, and again, I think that's probably about where most people's uh, appreciation of it stops. They're mm -hmm. important, but I don't know why. Yeah, so... Um the way that I see it, Earth is a, it's actually a very silly name for the planet. Um, we should have called it water um, because the, the majority of the planet is covered in water. Um, and the oceans are really important, not just for climate change, but for climate solutions. So one of the reasons that the oceans are incredibly important for climate scientists to understand is that they are incredibly deep and the deep ocean is incredibly cold. And so that means that it takes quite a long time for heat at the surface to get mixed down into the deep ocean. It takes a very, very long time for that sort of signal of human-caused climate change to reach the bottom of the oceans. So right now, the oceans are absorbing over 90% of the excess heat that is the Earth is experiencing due to climate change. But that's not a get out of jail free card. Um, that doesn't mean the heat just goes into the oceans and, and we never see it again. We can forget about it. Um, as the oceans are warming up, um, we are seeing, we, we will see now and we are seeing in the future changes in the climate associated with warmer oceans. Um, there are other things that are happening to the oceans as well. So carbon dioxide is changing the pH of the oceans. Um, it's making them more acidic. Um, and the big worry is that the climate change is also affecting the ocean circulation. Um, and the extent to which that is happening right now uh, the Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation is slowing down. Um, that is that is a genuine example of something that scientists are are fighting about um, and are uncertain about. Um, but climate change's ability to affect ocean currents is a worry. Um, but I think the oceans are also part of the solution. 
um, blue carbon is a, a buzzword that people like to talk about. The fact that you can plant trees and the trees will take up carbon dioxide, but there are plants in the ocean, phytoplankton, and those are really, really great sinks of carbon dioxide too. Um, and so thinking about how the oceans can be climate solutions, as well as sources of climate change or sources of worry, I think is, is the important other side of the coin. How, I'm curious, I mean, on the one hand, you, you know, carbon dioxide is changing the acidity uh, of the oceans, making them more acidic, but also we can store more carbon dioxide in the oceans. How do, how do you reconcile those things? The, the Earth is in a carbon cycle and has been for a long time. Um, so carbon, uh, natural carbon is emitted and then is recycled back and it's a cycle. And the oceans are a really important pre-existing part of that carbon cycle. Um, and so anything that changes the biophysical properties of the ocean, and by which I mean we can farm the ocean, there can be algae, there can be phytoplankton. That phytoplankton not only produces oxygen for us, but also takes up the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So- And then, and then where does it go? Hmm? Oh, it, it, it joins the cycle again. So I think the, the source of confusion right now and what I'm saying is that this is not a get out of jail free card. This is not something that we can just keep on increasing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the oceans will just take it up for us. That's not going to happen. But if we stop adding more carbon dioxide to the ocean or, or to the atmosphere and start thinking how to take it out, that's where the oceans can come into um, can, can come in handy, can be a solution for us. One of the things that you said before was, uh, you know, when you were saying that um, was it 90 or 93 percent of the heat uh, has been trapped in the ocean so far. Um, and I think that you have said in the past that uh, that's the equivalent of an, aton an atomic bomb's worth of energy stored in the ocean every second. Am, am I right about that? Um, I'd have to look up the numbers, but that sounds roughly it's, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, but then you also just said, of course, that, that heat doesn't then just disappear. It doesn't kind of go in there and just stay there. Mm -hmm. um, and that it eventually re-enters the atmosphere. How does that happen? So it can re-enter the atmosphere by warming up the surface. It can re-enter the atmosphere by, um, or re-enter the Earth system by melting ice. That heat has a lot of different things that it can do, none of which are particularly good. Um, so I work on something called the equilibrium climate sensitivity, um, which is basically a fancy science way of saying, how hot is it going to get? Um, and how hot is it going to get? Um, you know, obviously human activities are the things that really determine how hot it's going to get. But even if you take that uncertainty out of the picture and you say, what if we just doubled carbon dioxide? How hot would the planet get eventually? That eventually is a really long time, hundreds to even a thousand years, because it takes so long for the oceans to get the message, for the oceans to heat up. And that equilibrium climate sensitivity is always higher than what we know as the transient climate response. So 
If we continue increasing carbon dioxide emissions and we don't reduce it, we don't take it out of the atmosphere, um, then we will expect even more warming in the future as the oceans, the deep oceans heat up. And that happens over hundreds or even thousands of years. So all of this is adding up to quite a difficult picture uh, when it comes to how we avert things, right? Because we've got to stop putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in the first place. We have to work out ways of, of, of drawing it back down, but also doing so in a way that doesn't then just store the problem for later, is what I'm hearing you say. Like we could, you know, if we can work out ways to store carbon dioxide in forests or in phytoplankton, isn't there then a risk that at some point that then gets released again? Or does the natural cycle at that point take care of it? The natural cycle, I think, should largely take care of it. And we certainly are not vulnerable to a extremely rapid on geological timescales uh, increase um, that we're seeing right now. I'm curious about tipping points. So I, I hear a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate at the moment in the public policy space about what we should do about this and over what time scale and so on. And generally a lot sooner is where you, you kind of end up. But one of the things that people talk about is that we tend to treat this like it's a linear process. They say, well, we need to just reduce our greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in a steady kind of pattern over the course of the next 30 years until we get down to net zero. Uh, and most people can kind of get their head around that, including or even some of the businesses that are pretty heavily invested in the status quo can sort of at least get their head around the idea that they might need to disinvest from the status quo and invest in kind of new things over a you know, in a linear fashion over a time period, that there's a sort of an orderly transition from the economy that we've got now that puts all this pollution into the atmosphere versus, you know, the, the economy that we want in the future. But there are increasing numbers of people who are saying, well, yes, but there, you know, there is an increasing probability of tipping points that occur during that 30-year timescale. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, I think um, this is where that uncertainty is not your friend argument really comes in. Um, because if I was certain, and if I could tell you in exactly 29 years and five days, you will activate a tipping point that will break off the West Antarctic ice sheet um, and cause a sea, you know, a, a huge increase in sea level rise, um, then you know maybe you could plan accordingly. Um, but we don't have that certainty. We don't know exactly when these tipping points are going to be reached. Um, I think it's really important, and I hear a lot of times um, confusion about what tipping points actually mean. Um, so is it okay if I address that real quick? Um, Please. This is, this is something that, that bothers me a little bit. That's um, kind of what, what, what I was hoping for. <laughs> so some people think tipping points, so, or sometimes tipping points is used to sort of mean tipping into a runaway climate effect that's going to, or a, run, a runaway greenhouse effect that's going to make the earth like Venus. Um, and I think we have pretty good reason to expect that that is not going to happen. That's not something that we need to worry about. The flip side of that is sometimes people think tipping points mean feedbacks, feedback processes. Um, and those are not only going to happen, but they are already happening. So an example of a feedback process is ice melt. Um, ice is really shiny and reflective. Um, so it's really good at putting sunlight that reaches the earth back into space. 
Um, it's very reflective and that cools down the planet. Now, as you make the planet hotter, you melt the ice and where it used to be nice and shiny, um, now you have darker land or water underneath and that's more absorbent. And so ice melt is an example of uh, destabilizing feedback. Um, and that is happening right now. So you warm the planet, you melt the ice, that feeds back into the warming and that makes the warming worse. Um, so feedback processes are happening right now and we know a lot about them. Now, a tipping point, the way that we usually think about it is something, a threshold that you cross and you can't just go back. Um, you can't just take the carbon dioxide out of the air or stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere and everything will go back to the way it was. So an example of a tipping point is ice sheet melt, ice sheet break off. So if you melt the Antarctic or the Greenland ice sheets, those things took a really, really long time to build up. Um, and if you melt them, you can't you can't build them again in a day. So not only is that going to lead to really severe sea level rise, which is a real problem for those of us in coastal communities. I live in New York. I do not want it to be underwater. Um, but it's also not something that you can easily reverse. Um, other examples of tipping points are things like massive forest die off. Um, so it's possible we could cross a threshold where the Amazon would basically cease to exist. Um, and that is a huge problem for the circulation of air all around the planet. Um, so there are a whole bunch of different tipping points, which are different from runaway greenhouse effect, which are different from feedback processes, which we haven't reached yet. And we think may be lying in wait in the future, but we do not have certainty about when we are going to reach those. So in a world where you know, I guess the political and economic system is gearing up for this linear reduction over, roughly speaking, a three-decade period. Uh, and if, if we're lucky, the bulk of that effort will be distributed in the first third of those 10 years, um, if, if we can galvanise sufficient, you know, global action on, on that front. How, what's the interplay between, you know, what you were just describing with these, the feedback loops and the tipping points that we need to account for or not in terms of the, you know, the solutions, like what do we do about this? I think we need to get more comfortable with talking about uncertainty and living with uncertainty. Um, there, is no, there is no threshold where if we cross it, everything will be terrible. And if we don't cross it, everything will be fine. Um, everything is not fine right now. Um, and at 1.5 degrees, there is no guarantee that some important part of the planet will not be changed forever. Um, but I also think it's important to note that if we cross that, we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, there's, there's no point in doing anything because we exceeded a, a target. Nature doesn't think in degrees, like, right? Like degrees are a human construct um, and we can argue about Fahrenheit or Celsius or whatever, but you know, the world doesn't really know about those. The world just knows it's getting hotter. Um, and I think there, there's kind of a tendency to, well, let's just push it as far as we can get and, and you know, we'll, we'll see where we go. And you know, there, is, there is a fear there. 
um, we can't do that. We do, the only certainty we have is that we do need to cut emissions as quickly as possible. And these more gradual things, maybe that would have been a really good idea 30 years ago, but it's not anymore. One of the things that you said, there was a scientific uh, American column a couple of years ago. Um, I just want to quote you here. You said, uh, we don't know how to think about climate change because we've never really had to think about climate. Um, because you said that life as we know it developed during the Holocene. So basically for the entire of humanity's existence, um, we've, we've existed in a sort of a remarkably stable climate. But that's not true of the planet as a whole. You know, it's been through periods where it's been, you know, a lot warmer and with less ice and long periods of time where it's been a lot colder and a lot more ice. Uh, but humans have humans have existed in a, a period of time where it's been reasonably stable. So do you think that the situation that we're in at the moment, uh, like to what extent are humans capable of dealing with it? I mean, are we just so coded to this notion of stability that we find it difficult to picture anything else? So this is another question that I think is fascinating. And I'm going to say, I don't know, but I'm going to say it in a very long way. <laughs> because that is the thing that scares me the most, is that society is not going to be able to cope with even a moderate amount of climate change. Um, and I already see it in things like calls to ban refugees or, you know, prevent people from having children. Um, those are not things that I agree with. And those are those that that rhetoric is really frightening to me. Um, and I think if you look at the historical record, there are instances of even small shifts in climate having very destabilizing effects. Um, but there was a paper that came out very recently, I want to say two days ago, um, in Nature that I thought was fascinating. Um, and it was written by a historian, a climate scientist, and they were arguing, we don't actually know that much about how human beings react to changes in climate. Um, and there might be a selection bias. Uh, when we look at these past events, we just look at the catastrophic events. We look at the times when there was a shift in climate and that changed everything. Um, we don't look at times where, well, how, how do we know that we're looking, we're incorporating samples of times when the climate changed and people developed new social structures, people developed ways of cooperating in order to deal with that, in order to handle that adversity. Um, so the answer is we don't necessarily know how humans are going to respond to massive climatic shifts. Um, and we don't know in a really interesting way. Um, but we do know that there are things to be really frightened of. There are political responses um, that are deeply frightening to me. Um, and that is one of the things that scares me the most. You know, listening to you talking now, you, you know, I sort of wonder about the extent to which, not that you or I get to do this, but 15,000 years from now, you know, will we be looking back on this time really just as a, you know, a story about something that happened once or maybe didn't happen, <laughs> depending on the quality of our record keeping in the intervening period of time? I, I mean, I don't know. I really hope that in 15,000 years, whatever is on the planet looks back and thinks, that was 
how could they have been so silly to think that setting fire to, to fossil fuels um, to power their civilization was a good idea. Um, but I also hope they think, wow, it was really, really lucky they stopped doing that. Um, but, you know, I think what you say is really interesting because it does speak to the power of the natural world, the power of climatic events to really shape humans. We tend to think of humans as separate from nature. Um, you know, is it natural or is it human made? But obviously humans are part of nature. Um, and this is something that always gets brought home to me when, you know, for example, there is a blizzard in New York. Um, you know, we think that we live in this interconnected society and we have all of this technology, and yet we are completely powerless against this very natural weather phenomenon that, that happens every year, more or less. Um, and, and that always sort of brings it home to me that humans are, we are part of this planet and we are subject to the weather patterns of this planet. Um, so, yeah. Um, you know, to go on a little bit more of a rant, um, you know, a sort of more recent, not flooding event, but pluvial event, which is the opposite of a drought. Um, the tree ring records show that in um, the 1200s, I want to say, early 1200s in Mongolia, there was about a 15-year period of, of a pluvial where the rains were really plentiful, crop yields increased like crazy. Um, and at the end of that period, a Mongol army comes out of Mongolia and they're the most powerful army the world has ever seen. So I don't want to say that climate change or natural climate variability caused Genghis Khan, but there certainly is a connection between the climate conditions and then historical events that had a massive impact on the world. I'm quite struck by that. So that's, I mean, at one level that makes sense, right, is that if there is an abundance of food, you're more likely to get an abundance of people, <laughs> uh, and and that that can lead to an expansionist thing. But I I'd, I'd never heard that before. I find that um, both remarkable, but perhaps unsurprising at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks to the difficulty of of predicting human and cultural and sociological responses to climate change. Um, and I think this the story that we tell all the time where climate change is just going to lead to mass migrations from, you know, impoverished countries into the wealthier countries. Um, and that's the only thing we need to be thinking of and the only narrative we need to hold. I, I think that's way too reductive and way too simplistic. Well, particularly given that some of the wealthier countries seem to be catching fire once a year. Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't look like a terribly good... <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, in terms of where those movements go. Um, so ha having said all of that, w one of the things that we are doing right now is trying to develop a plan, when I say we, I'm talking about the government of New Zealand, trying to marshal uh, sort of um, our indigenous uh, communities, um, business sectors, uh, youth, um, uh, you know, other ethnic kind of communities and so on to develop, a, I guess, a, a, a nationwide response, a plan for this. And 
there's an enormous challenge of coordinating government action here because, you know, we're dealing with a, a housing crisis. We've obviously still got the global pandemic to deal with. Uh, you know, um, there are issues to do with our water infrastructure, uh, you know, which turned out nobody was taking particularly good care of for the last 30 years and now needs a lot of work. You know, so you talk to any minister in any part of the government and they've got the thing that they're trying to deal with, the fire that they're trying to put out, and yet the climate response kind of gets to just about everybody. Um, and and so you've got to fit that priority in alongside all the other things, many of which are much more present, you know. Um, so I guess the question is, from your perspective, what do you think are the priorities? What do, what do we need? What do we need to focus on when you're dealing with a situation which is massively complex and interconnected? Um, how do you deal with the fact that at the same time you still need to have at least a little bit of a reductionist mindset and kind of focus on a handful of things that might help you to navigate through this? I mean, this is where I say that. It's, it's my job to solve differential equations, not massive social problems. Um, this, is, this is not really something that I have the expertise to, to attack. Um, and I think that I, I, I am glad that, you know, you're taking a whole of government approach and you're talking to different communities. Um, you know, because again, you know, from a physics perspective, um, this is all happening because more carbon dioxide is going in the atmosphere. The, sol- the policy solution is simple, just stop doing that. Um, obviously, it is not a simple policy solution, um, but I think it can really help to sort of identify areas where, where are your country's carbon emissions coming from and why and how can you change that? Um, and again, you know, this is why you don't talk to physicists to, to solve policy problems. Um, but it is my impression that there's no, there's not going to be a silver bullet to solve climate change. Um, this is not the kind of problem that you can solve by shooting at it anyway. Um, but there are, there, there's a whole array of different solutions. Um, and it's not going to take one of them. It's not going to take two of them. It's going to take a whole bunch of different solutions. Um, and that's why it's such a hard problem. Um, can I just ask, in, in a column uh, for Scientific American, you said, hope is the knowledge that we can prevent bad things and the realization that we might choose not to. What did you mean by that? I meant this idea that I live with all the time, which is that the worst case scenario is optional. Um, we don't have to experience the nightmares that I see when I run some of these climate models into the future. Um, we don't have to experience, you know, the entire southwest of the U.S. in permanent mega drought. Um, we don't have to experience large-scale wildfires in Australia every summer. Um, we don't have to experience mass extinction, mass extinction of, of many species. Um, you know, all of this stuff is is optional, and to a certain extent, our decisions in the next ten years are going to determine what planet we live on, um, and that's something that is really hard to live with. Um, that knowledge that it could be really bad, but it doesn't have to be. 
um, in a sense, it can be really comforting. And I've seen people do this to just tip over into one narrative or the other to say, well, it's so overwhelming to think about that I'm just going to refuse to believe it's happening. And I'm going to say climate change isn't real. Um, or there are other people who say it is so overwhelming and terrifying and scary, and I can't, I can't live with that hope. I can't live with the knowledge that maybe it doesn't have to be this way. So I'm just going to believe that we're doomed and it's terrible and the worst case is inevitable and, and we deserve it. And I understand both of those urges. Um, but I don't ever want to give into them. And I don't think it's helpful for us as a global community to give into those. But I don't want to minimize the fact that living with that, living with that hope, living with that resolve is not easy. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you again to Kate Marvel for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking with the writers David Wallace-Wells, Barbara Kingsolver, and Elizabeth Colbert. So keep an eye on your podcast feeds for those. Until next time. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.